Well, it is great to be with you again today on this Sunday. It's great to be with those of you in the room and those of you who are watching online with us as well. At the end of our time together this morning, we are going to be celebrating communion together. And so if you did not receive a set of communion elements on the way in, if you would like a set, please raise your hand and a member of our host team will be more than happy to bring those to you. I think it's safe to say for all of us, right, that um, there is no part of 2020 um, that has gone anything in the way that any of us actually thought um, that it would. And and whenever that happens, right, for all of us, um, that just naturally leaves us with questions. It makes us wonder about certain things. And and the bigger that gap between expectation and reality, right, the the bigger and the deeper um, those, just, those questions, they just naturally become. And the truth is, as followers of Jesus, right, none of us are immune to this. In fact, um, as a pastor since March, the inbox on my email account, it has been steadily filled with a whole series of questions, all of which I would say are very indicative of, of 2020. Questions like, do you think all of this is a sign um, that Jesus is about to return? Is this the beginning of the end? Is this all the beginning of the apocalypse? Is this God judging our nation? Do you think that if our nation, if we all pray and repent, that that God will remove this virus um, from among among us and among our country? And, And I would always say, right, that praying and repenting of your sin, that's always a good thing right? That's always a good thing. Um, Outbreak or not, all of us benefit from praying and, and repenting of our sin, right? And I understand why these questions are kind of floating around in all of our minds, right? These are, these are interesting questions. These are, are good questions. And I understand why people ask these questions. It has everything to do, it's, it's for all kinds of reasons, actually, from the, what they experienced in their growing up church, um, to the different movies that they've watched, or the books that they've read, maybe even authors um, that they've listened to from time to time. And again, these are good questions, they're interesting questions, but these are not necessarily um, the most important questions. These are not necessarily um, the most helpful questions for the church to be asking in this moment. Because these are not the questions that the first century church was asking when it found itself in very similar circumstances, right? And I'm old enough to, to, to know Um, that this is not the first time that these sorts of questions have kind of bubbled up to the surface of everyday life. In fact, those of you who are older than I am, then you know that um, you can remember even more occasions where um, this has actually happened in culture and in society than I can. And that kind of brings us to the the whole point of today's message as we wrap up our time together in our four campaign this year, um, which is really, um, what questions then should we be asking? in this moment, right? And when I say we, I don't mean we as individuals. No, I mean we, the church. What questions should the church be asking in this moment? What should we be focusing on? Where should our attention be focusing? And see, what's interesting to me, what's incredibly interesting to me is is this. Um, When the the first followers of Jesus, the followers of Jesus in the first century, um, when when they were confronted with um, social issues that they could not solve, Right? And, a, and a pandemic that for whatever reason God chose not to withhold. But Scripture is actually very, very clear about the questions that they were asking in that moment. 
Now, some context for us to understand that's important to what we're going to read together in just a couple of moments. After Jesus was crucified, after Pontius Pilate gave in to the religious leaders and he allowed Jesus to be crucified by them, um, basically what happened is there was kind of a, an open season declared on, on all the, the Jesus followers. In fact, after that happened, think about this. After that happened, the religious leaders no longer went to Pilate for permission to execute anyone. Instead, they just took it upon themselves to execute whoever it is that they found to be a Jesus follower. And the first victim of this was a man by the name of Stephen, right? You might know his name. Stephen um, was a man who was chosen by the apostles, and his job was to distribute food um, to, to widows who were poor and who were suffering. And Stephen has become, as history tells us, the first martyr in the Christian church, meaning um, Stephen was the first person to lose his life just for simply being associated with Jesus. But in addition to being gifted at organizing and distributing uh, much-needed food and supplies to widows, Scripture also tells us that Stephen was an incredibly gifted communicator, that he was very persuasive, he was a very powerful communicator. And when the religious leaders in Jerusalem decide to arrest Stephen, um, they, they made a crucial mistake because they put Stephen on trial for blasphemy, but during his trial, he actually allowed him to speak to a crowd of people, and Stephen's argument for why Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God was so powerful and so persuasive, it just made the religious leaders who were there that day even angrier than they already were. And so they went and they grabbed Stephen and they dragged Stephen off, not to Pilate, but to the outskirts of town, where they stoned him to death. And stoning, if you don't know, is a terribly brutal, it's, a, a ter it's an incredibly awful way to die. And then when there were no repercussions whatsoever from the, the religious leaders or from, or from the Romans at that time, the religious leaders, they just decided to go and declare open season on anyone who, who was a member of what was known at this time as the way. That's how they referred to those people who followed Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, um, the apostle, uh, in Acts chapter 8, we actually read this. Luke records this for us. He tells us that on that day, that day that um, Stephen was stoned to death, on that day, a great persecution, it broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles, right? So the apostles are the 12 chosen by Jesus minus Judas. All of them, everybody except them, was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. They were no longer able to meet together legally, and they were no longer able to meet together publicly. And so Luke, he continues his story, and he tells us this. He says, so the followers of Jesus, they disbanded. Their leaders were eventually all rounded up and executed. And the movement which was begun by Jesus, it just simply ceased to exist. Right? No, that's not at all what happened. Right? Luke actually tells us the exact opposite, right? And in verse 4, you know this, those who had been scattered, they just went and they preached the word wherever they went. And the fact that they were no longer able to meet together in the same place, that in no way it dampened their enthusiasm for Jesus. Instead, it just simply served as a catalyst for the followers of Jesus to spread the message of Jesus to people and to places who had yet to hear the message of Jesus. And as you probably know, the chief persecutor of the church at this time in history was a man known as Saul of Tarsus, who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. 
And during this season, right, during this season, you have to picture this. Saul literally went from house to house, right? So you have to think about this in your mind. House to house, dragging out men, dragging out women, dragging out children, all to be tortured and imprisoned simply because they embraced Jesus as their Savior. And then when Saul couldn't find any more followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, he went out and he got himself deputized so that he could go over to Damascus, which was more than a two-week journey away from Jerusalem, and he could go and he could arrest and persecute the followers of Jesus over in that city as well. That's how determined Saul was at destroying this Nazarene sect that was known as the Way. But as you know, as he was on his way to destroy the way, he was encountered by the living Jesus and immediately, right, immediately he decided to join the apparently losing team, which would go on to reshape the world and shape Western civilization forever. So a little recap before we jump into our scripture for today. The followers of Jesus, they are despised and they are dispersed. They have no power and they have no influence. And the very God that they worship is not doing anything to make any of their lives any easier. Sound familiar? So what questions did they ask? When they got together, what was on the front of their minds? When they were talking with each other? What were they most concerned with? Well, Luke actually picks up the story right there for us in Acts chapter 11, if you want to follow along. Luke tells us, beginning in verse 19, that those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, They went to Antioch, now Antioch is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and they began to speak to the Greeks there also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if at some point in the future we were all to look back on 2020 and this became the story of the church? in 2020, when those who could no longer gather together as they once did, when they were spread out and dispersed, and they looked for new ways to communicate the truth and the hope of who Jesus is to their family, to their friends, over social media, on Zoom, on FaceTime, in their neighborhoods. See, my prayer My prayer is that someday this would be our story. Someday this would be the story that someone tells about us, about our generation, about this moment. 
Meanwhile, the people back in Antioch, right, there are so many non-Jewish people over in Antioch who are embracing Jesus as their Savior that the church over in Antioch reaches out to the church in Jerusalem for help because they need help discipling and teaching all these people. So the church in Jerusalem decides to send Barnabas to them. But by the time Barnabas gets there, there's so many more new believers in Antioch that Barnabas himself has to call in for reinforcements as well. Luke picks up in verse 25 and he says this, so then Barnabas, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who is the apostle Paul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch so that he could help out. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, they met together with the church and they taught great numbers of people in Antioch. And again, the reason why there's so many people in Antioch in the first place is because of this disruption and this persecution in Jerusalem, which is more than 300 miles away. And see, here's what's so interesting and so instructive about this story for us today. Right? There is no indication anywhere whatsoever that either the church in Jerusalem or the church in Antioch was trying to figure out how all of this disruption and how all of this displacement and how all of this persecution was somehow tied into someone, some larger, grander eschatological narrative. No one did that. Instead, they simply interpreted this as an opportunity for them to take the good news about who Jesus out away from where they normally were. They saw this as an opportunity to just be focused on what it is that Jesus had already commanded them to do. And interestingly enough, and again, some of you, you might know this, Luke tells us that when this happened, this actually was the first time. This was the first time that the disciples were ever referred to as Christians It was as a result of the widespread distribution of people and the persecution happening in Jerusalem. It's the first time they were ever called Christians was in Antioch. And it's at this point in our story that our story begins to take a very interesting and a very unexpected twist, which is in fact why we're talking about this story today. Because Luke tells us during this time, in the next verse, verse 27, during this time of uncertainty, during this time of widespread persecution, right, during this time some prophets come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus. He stood up and through the Spirit he predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Now, the truth is, uh, the idea of a famine doesn't bother any of us whatsoever does it? Right? We're, we're not in any way afraid of the idea of a famine. But in ancient times, this was the, the, the most terrifying idea imaginable because a famine in ancient times meant that an entire city, perhaps an entire region, maybe even an entire nation filled with people that they would all starve to death. This was the worst news imaginable. And this was not going to be a local famine according to what had been prophesied. No, this was going to be a, a, re, a famine that would take place throughout the entire Roman Empire, which was essentially the entire world at this point in time. So that meant that people could not leave their own city and just go to some other neighboring city to buy food because everyone was going to be affected by this famine. 
In fact, Luke, as he continues to tell us about this, he knows that many of his readers have, in fact, lived through this very event because Luke is writing this after the fact. And so Luke actually says to us, kind of parenthetically, he said, this actually happened. This famine that was predicted, it happened during the reign of Claudius. Claudius was the emperor right before Nero. And so these first century followers of Jesus, they've just gotten this horrible news, this terrible news, news that's going to affect everyone they know, everyone in their family, everyone in their communities, and they did not respond by asking questions about what this news meant. They did not respond by saying that this was somehow God judging the Roman Empire for its cruelty. They did not respond with any of those things or that this was somehow a sign that the end was near. No, instead what they did, don't miss this, they went on to ask questions that were far more practical and far more helpful because after all, they're Jesus followers now. So they began to ask questions that were in keeping with the teaching of Jesus. N.T. Wright, who is one of the leading theologians and and New Testament scholars of our day, um, comments on this exact section of Scripture in a little book that he wrote called God and the Pandemic, um, which if you're interested in is, as everything else, available on Amazon, and it's a a great book. Um, But he says that when these followers of Jesus, when, when they were confronted and they were together and they realized that something terrible was about to happen to them, to their families, and to their communities, he says, here's the questions that they asked. Who is at risk? How can I help? And who should we send? And again, these people living in Antioch, right, they were very well aware that this famine was going to affect them as well, that it was going to affect their own families as well as all these other families. But these followers of Jesus, they stopped to consider the implications of how this famine would affect other followers of Jesus who were going to be harder hit than they were, particularly these followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, most of which were already considered to be outlaws, and most of which could not work because they had been expelled from the temple. And so even before any famine happens, they're already more vulnerable, and they're already significantly more poor than everybody else. And so before the famine even occurs, these followers of Jesus in Antioch they see this disaster as an opportunity. An opportunity to actually care for the followers of Jesus all the way in Jerusalem that they had never met and that they had nothing in common with. And so instead of simply asking themselves the question, what does all of this mean? They ask the question, what can we do? Luke then goes on to tell us the answer to that question in the next verse, and he says this. He says, the disciples, as each one was able, they decide to provide help for the brothers and the sisters living in Judea. They did this by sending their gift to the elders by way of Barnabas and Saul. And here's the part that's so easy for us to miss and honestly difficult for us to appreciate, but oh so incredibly important to what we're talking about today. Jerusalem was more than 300 miles away from Antioch, right? That would be like all of us picking up and deciding to walk from here to Cincinnati, 
Right? Those two cities were worlds apart geographically as well as culturally. Antioch was filled with Gentiles, right? Gentiles who, who thought that Jewish people were a very strange and a very arrogant group of people, right? These people in Antioch, they could have easily, right? They could have easily dismissed any feelings they would have had of responsibility to help a group of people that they would never meet and who lived in a part of the world that they would never go to. Because again, this was going to be an empire-wide famine. Their own families were going to be affected as well, and they would have to care for them also. On top of all that, in ancient times, the idea of being generous with someone who could not or would not be generous with you in return, that was not seen as virtuous. That was seen as weakness. I mean, why in the world would you actually go out and help someone who could not help you back in return? That was foolishness. That, that didn't make any sense to any of them. The reason you gave was because you expected to get. The reason you did favors was for someone was because you expected to receive a favor in return someday. And yet these people in Jerusalem, they wouldn't even know the names of the people in Antioch who gave. And the people in Antioch wouldn't even know their names either. In ancient times, there wasn't even a category for thinking like this. Until Jesus. Until people began to understand the implications of the gospel of Jesus. Because when these Gentiles were presented with the message of Jesus, they recognized that, that they had a sin debt that they could not pay. That through Jesus, God actually paid their debt. That through Jesus, they had been given peace. Not with the fickle Roman gods, the Roman pantheon of gods of their childhood. No, they had actually been given peace with the living God. The creator of all things. And that they were now to do for others what their heavenly Father through Jesus had so generously done for them. Because as followers of Jesus, right, they were now accountable to the commands of Jesus to love one another the way that Jesus loved them. And so when they had the opportunity to give with no possible way to receive, they gave willingly and they gave generously. And see, this is amazing. This is amazing because never before in recorded history had a multicultural group such as the one in Antioch taken on a family responsibility for a group of people that they had virtually nothing in common with and who they would never meet. And where in the world did this culturally and politically incorrect way of thinking and behaving come from? It came from recognizing that their Heavenly Father, He so loved the world that He gave. It came from recognizing the fact that by this kind of generosity, this unheard of, unusual kind of generosity, all people for all ages would know that they were Jesus followers. They gave 
because that's what love required of them. And see, don't miss this, because those are our people, right? They were the very first ones to introduce a brand new type of generosity that would go on to brand Christianity, a brand of generosity that would go on to become the trademark and the hallmark of the followers of Jesus everywhere forever. And Faith Troy, I am so proud that you have learned to imitate your Savior so well because this year at Christmas, all over our community and even all the way in Guatemala, people are going to be thanking their Heavenly Father for you. Watch this. So this year, throughout our four campaign, we have been talking about what it means to organize our lives and to order our lives around um, generosity, the way that Jesus defines generosity. And each week, um, we've said that when we learn to be generous, um, the way that Jesus defines generous, then it is true, we will certainly give more, but we will also save more and we will, in fact, consume less. Now, last week, if you were with us, then we talked about this connection between consumption and worry and money. And we said the way off of this thing called the debt cycle, it's not by making more money. Because we recognize that if, if any of us were to go to work tomorrow and just somehow magically get a huge raise, or if somehow just a, a pile of money was dropped on us, the truth is we're just going to keep doing whatever it is that we're currently doing with our money. We're just going to do the very same thing with more money. And so instead, we said the way off of the debt cycle is to learn how to reorganize and to reprioritize our finances around generosity rather than consumption because generous people, we said, do not assume that everything that comes to me is for me, right? So then what do we do? How, how exactly does this work? What do Jesus followers do? 
Right? And again, the great news is that Jesus has already told us, the first century followers of Jesus, they've already modeled this for us. Because here's what generous people do. This is what I'm going to challenge all of us to do this weekend. Generous people learn how to give it before they simply consume it. See, the truth is what all of us have to do is we have to learn how to flip this script Right? Because this is the script that all of us, that we just naturally follow. This is the script that all of us are just naturally born into. I'm going to live and I'm going to spend whatever it is that I want on me. And then maybe if there's any left over after that, I'll save some of it. And if somebody inspires me or if they make me feel guilty for what it is that I have, then maybe I'll randomly give something to somebody somewhere. But see, the truth is, right, this is nothing more than a whole bunch of me first living with some leftover giving right? Welcome to average. Welcome to the debt cycle. Welcome to what everybody does because this is how everybody else lives. Instead, the key to generosity as Jesus describes and as he defines generosity is actually reordering and reprioritizing our finances so that what naturally is last actually becomes first. As followers of Jesus, what we do is we give first. We save second and then we live on the rest. We give first, we save for our own future second, and then we live on what's left over. Because this is evidence of submission, right? This is tangible proof that there is a me other than me that I am actually following, right? That someone other than me is leading me. This is tangible evidence that I am not the one making my life all about me. Another way to think about this is this way. Saving is where all of us, where, it's, where we say yes to our future, but generosity is how all of us actually say yes to those things that are important to us, right? And so here's how we choose how to give and where to give, right? Two things, actually. This is what we saw in this story from Acts chapter 11. You give from a grateful heart and you give from a broken heart. That's how you choose, right? What we saw in Acts chapter 11 with these first followers of Jesus, these followers of Jesus in Antioch, they gave from a grateful heart. They were grateful for receiving the message of the gospel, and they gave from a broken heart. They were brokenhearted over the tragedy that was about to take place in their world and that was going to affect so many of their fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus. You give from a grateful heart and you give from a broken heart. Jesus said this. All of you have heard this before. Where your treasure is, right, there your heart will be also. So that's not new. All of us have heard this before. But what it means is that wherever your money is, right, a part of your heart is going there. But see, it also means if you want to change where your heart is at, just change the direction of your money, that it actually works both ways. Because as a follower of Jesus, we always give from a grateful heart and we give from a broken heart. In other words, what are you grateful for and what are you broken over? What are you grateful for and what are you broken over? In other words, I'm going to give to that organization or that thing that I'm grateful for and I'm going to also give to that organization or that group or that thing that addresses some need in my community, some need in my neighborhood, some need in my nation or my world that just breaks my heart. 
And see, this is why anybody who loves their church should give to their church. And the truth is, if you do not love your church, you should go find a church that you do love so much and that you are so grateful for that you actually want to give to it to help support it. Because when your kids can't wait to go to church, right, when your kids are the ones who wake you up on Sunday morning because they want to go to church, you should give to your church because you are grateful for your church. You're grateful for the fact that they're bringing the the gospel of Jesus to you and to your family, to the people in your community. But in addition to that, you should also give to an organization that addresses something in your world, something in this world that breaks your heart, something that creates emotion in you. Whether that be an organization that's helping children in Guatemala, like My Special Treasure, or an organization that's helping those um, who are in need living in mobile home communities like House of Hope. People who are bringing the joy and the happiness and the excitement of Christmas to families all throughout Metro Detroit like gifts for all God's children. People who are working to provide the working poor with medical and dental needs in Oakland and Macomb County like Trinity Community Care. We're the people who are reaching out to the victims of human trafficking, helping them to understand that they are loved, that they are cherished, that they have worth, that they have a Savior who died for them, like Ellie's house. Right? Whatever it is that breaks your heart, you should give to support that organization as well. A couple of weeks ago, I was actually talking to a, a, a buddy of mine who's also a pastor. And I was telling him about our four campaign, tell him how much I was looking forward to it this year, especially this year because of the whole 2020 thing, telling him about how generous you all have been in the past and and just how excited I was and how thankful I was for our church and for your incredible generosity and love for people. And and, and I could tell, I mean, the the conversation, um, it just wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't getting what I was saying because there's, there's a whole series of, of just kind of these awkward pauses, right? And at one point in the conversation, he kind of goes silent for a minute, and then he, he finally blurted it out. But aren't you afraid? But, but aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid that the people in your church, they're going to want to give to those organizations rather than your church? And I just kind of regrouped for a second, and I said to him, I'm not afraid. That's actually the goal. Right? That, that is actually the goal. See, I, I don't want people's money. I just do not want people's money to get them. I, I'm not afraid. You don't ever have to be afraid what generous Jesus followers are going to do with their money. You don't ever have to be afraid of that. That's actually part of the goal. What we're trying to do is to create a culture of generosity. Because, see, followers of Jesus, right, followers of Jesus, people who actively follow Jesus, they just make things better, right? They just do. You cannot actively follow Jesus and not make things better. You cannot actively follow Jesus and not make the places where you live or the places where you work or the place where you go to school and make those places better. It is impossible. It is impossible because of what Jesus taught And it is impossible because what Jesus modeled. Because what Jesus taught and what Jesus modeled is that devotion to our Heavenly Father, that's actually measured in terms of devotion to the people who are made in His image. 
And so consequently, when you follow Jesus around all throughout the Gospels, wherever Jesus went, people, people were better off. Because Jesus did not simply feel compassion. Jesus acted compassionately. So what does the rest of 2020 hold for us? The truth is, I'm just like you. I have no clue. But here's what I do know. Regardless of whether or not our building is closed, our church, Jesus' church, we will continue to be open and we will continue to ask very important and very critical questions. Who is at risk? How can we help? And who should we send? Now, if you've not yet had the opportunity to participate in our four campaign this year, this is the last weekend to do so. You can give your gift of 1995. You can give that in the lobby on your way out. You can give it online if you would like. And we still have a number of kids that we're hoping to bring the joy and the excitement of Christmas to this year through Gifts for All God's Children. Um, so I would love it if you would sp- sign up to sponsor one of those kids or more than one of those kids if you are able. If you'd like to do that, you can do that in the lobby as well. You decide if you want to sponsor a boy or a girl, you get to pick their age group. And then you go out, you shop for those gifts, you wrap all those gifts, and then you bring all those gifts back here between November 29th and December the 6th, and we will make sure that they get to where they need to be for Christmas. Now today, as we wrap up together, and as we prepare our hearts for communion, I've asked the the worship team to lead us in a song, a, a song of reflection. And so I, I want you to just sit, and I want you to listen to this song, I want you to key in on the words to this song especially. And my prayer is that you would, during these next few moments, silently, personally, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. I want you to consider three things. What am I grateful for? What am I broken over? And how can I help?